Hi guys, and welcome to episode 59 of the Road CC podcast in association with Hammerhead. So, as usual, George here, giving the intros. Uh, we have a really interesting episode today. So, first off, we have myself, Ryan, Simon and Jack talking all things ULES. So, I don't know if you guys have heard, hasn't really been on the news much, but Sadiq Khan has decided to expand the ULES zone. Um, and we kind of ask about whether that is likely to increase the number of cyclists in London, basically. Um, Simon's got a really huge knowledge of this kind of thing. So really great to have him on to talk about everything to do with it. Kind of, you know, the various complicated politics around it and why they're deciding to do it now. Um, so, yeah, really insightful, really good. Uh, Simon basically knows his stuff. So very, very, very much worth having a listen to if you aren't or are very familiar with the current ULES, let's call it a controversy, but manufactured controversy. And then uh, Jack sits down with Brian McCulloch. So Brian is a specialist physio and bike fitter who specialises basically in injury recovery for cyclists. And for those of you guys who don't know, Jack has recently undergone uh, quite a significant surgery where they basically kind of shaved off a bit of his hip, which does not sound pleasant at all. Weirdly doesn't explain to Brian that that could have perhaps been caused by all of the pogoing he did as a youngster. For for those of you guys who don't know, I yeah, just Google Jack Sexty and pogo stick and you'll find some pretty interesting stuff there. Um, and again, it's kind of a, a really unique conversation because, you know, Jack doesn't go into his kind of like really deep medical history or anything like that. But listening to somebody who is being directly impacted by the things that, you know, are being discussed kind of puts a new angle on things because you can really hear that Jack is kind of starting to understand things a bit more um, and kind of very appreciative of you know, the advice that, he, that that Brian's giving him. So again, fantastic interview, um, something that we haven't really had before. So something that I hope you guys really enjoy. Um, but anyway, I'm rambling on. So I hope you guys uh, enjoy this episode. Here is episode 59 of the Road CC podcast in association with Hammerhead. Hi guys. So today is the day where ULES is expanding. Um, there's been a lot of hysteria around it, but we wanted to discuss whether that is likely to increase the number of people who are going to be cycling around London. So I'm joined by Ryan. Hi. Simon. Hiya. And Jack. Hello. And we're going to be talking about this ULES expansion and how it might relate to cycling. So Simon, you are without a doubt the expert in this. So do you want to give us a bit of a lowdown of exactly what it is that's happening? Uh, yeah, so ULES is um, the ultra low emission zone, which was first introduced in central London uh, in an area corresponding to the congestion charging zone back in 2019. 
and I'll come back to that in a minute. Now, in 2021, it was expanded to sit inside the area surrounded by the North Circular Road and the South Circular Road. And where I live is just inside the, the North Circular. So where we are isn't affected by today's change at all. So what's happened today is that it's been expanded to effectively the whole of Greater London. Um, some of the Conservative-run outer London boroughs brought a High Court action to try and block it, uh, as did a couple of the, the county councils that border on London, because people from outside London bring cars inside that are not compliant with the emissions levels. They'll have to pay the £12.50 daily charge as well. Um, so it's aimed at... Um, getting the, the most polluting vehicles off our streets, um, the drivers of those vehicles, if they want to bring them into London or drive them within London, they will have to pay a £12.50 daily charge. Now, according to Transport for London, 90% of vehicles within the city are already compliant with, with ULES. So despite what you may read in the papers, and even yesterday there was a, there was a tweet from the Conservative Party's official Twitter account, implying that it was all drivers coming into London would have to pay the charge. It's actually going to only affect a small, very small proportion of people. And let's not forget as well that, you know, within London, in some boroughs, actually owning a motor vehicle is the minority. Even in outer London boroughs, it's maybe two thirds to three quarters of houses that do have access to a motor vehicle. So we're certainly not talking about something that's going to affect all Londoners. It's just a very, very small proportion. Mm. <clears throat> yeah, I remember the I remember the expansion in October 2021 because the the edge of it was at the bottom of my street, um, and I don't remember all of all of the hysteria around it then. Even though you know it you know it was a significant expansion going from basically north of the river all the way down through to um, to where I was in Lewisham. So, I mean, why do you think it's suddenly become such a hot topic? Um, I think one of the key reasons is, is the way that um, a lot of issues that we've seen have become very, very politicised. I mean, okay, the last expansion took place in 2021, like you said, so that's already once we're into, you know, the second year of the coronavirus pandemic. But... Um, I think you can see, you know, we, we've seen in recent months um, a lot of the demonstrations in places like Oxford, uh, also parts of London, against things like low traffic neighbourhoods or, or schemes aimed at um, reducing traffic. We've seen a very visible, very small, but very visible presence of anti-Ulez protesters there. Um, you know, people like Piers Corbyn and, you know, they're there with their yellow gilets on, um, they've got their anti-Ules placards and everything. And then what happened more recently uh, was the the by-election in Boris Johnson's old seat of Uxbridge and South Ryslip, which is, um, as of today, inside the Ules zone. Um, that was a massive Conservative majority, and Labour managed to reduce it to 400. But the key campaign issue at that by-election was the Ules expansion. And I think what happened there was that um, the Conservative Party at top level actually saw the issue of clean air zones because 
there are other cities throughout the UK that either already have clean air zones or are looking at introducing them. But they saw that as a potential vote winner at a time when the polls are showing that, you know, in the event of a general election, Labour would have a massive majority. So it's become what they've called, called a wedge issue and, and one that I think Conservatives at the highest levels are keen to exploit, you know, in the hope of holding on to some votes. Mm. Well, one of the reasons we were having this conversation is because we were having a bit of a debate on our internal Skype about... So there's uh, various bike share schemes that were basically... I wouldn't say using is maybe a bit unfair. It's, it might be how I interpreted it, just as like a snap thing. Maybe it was a little unfair. Uh, was it was it Swap Fiets, I think, with the, yeah. the one that uh, ran an ad that said, oh, you know, um, if Ulez is coming in in your zone, then maybe you should swap to a bike. And I, I just saw that as like, well, if, if the Conservative part, look, there was an ad that you shared this morning from the Conservatives saying, if you basically saying vote for Labour and they will charge you to drive uh, wherever you live, you know, which is like a long, long way from happening if it, if it is going to happen. Um, so, I mean, we're here to talk about how the potential, what, what impact this could have on cycling or lead to more cycling. Um, do any of you agree with me that this is potentially a bit cynical to sort of target uh, use ULES as a, a, re- a reason to to get because I, I think the one thing I've noticed about this whole holistic thing about you know ULES low traffic neighbourhoods even COVID it's all coming together in this big thing for for governments to control us and is the best way to counter that to say oh switch to a, switch to a bike you know like I can't imagine that's going to be like a winner for the kind of people. Well. Mayor Sadiq Khan and anyone who cares about clean air is is trying to to get across to these people, you know. Well, just in terms of the people who are obviously, Simon, you said, protesting, you know, in London and Oxford about these things, uh, the kind of the response to Swap Fates and Brompton as well, doing like deals. So Swap Fates one was quite interesting. It said, they will offer savvy and sustainable Londoners the chance to bypass the new £12.50 daily ULES charge and cruise into work on an e-bike instead. While uh, Brompton's one was you get 10% off certain Brompton models uh, as part of the scrappage scheme, which is, is part of ULES. And I just thought it was interesting some of the kind of stuff that was being posted on social media about those deals. Like somebody wrote, uh, Can is contributing 10% of the cost of a Brompton to anybody who lives in the extended Ule zone. These bikes range between £1,400 and £3,500. That's how this idiot wastes our money. And then somebody else wrote, quite predictably, that won't help Arthur and Ethel much with their weekly shop. Uh, you know, very typical kind of thing. And then, how many cyclists do you see around here other than the Lycra weekend hobby cyclists? Hardly any. Point is, Can doesn't understand yeah. that and is prepared to spend our money on unlimited Brompton discounts. So that's kind of like some of the reaction. I mean, that, that, I guess that's the point I was trying to make. That that yeah. like I, I don't know whether this is uh, and you like uh, it's it's like, as we were discussing. Whenever ULES comes up, clean air zones, it's like related to cycling because if air is going to be less toxic in us as a result of ULES, it's going to be. Uh, more pleasant to cycle, to walk, and to live in 
in London and the outer areas. Um, but I, I just can't see because, like I said, there there is some people who might be unfortunate enough, like like if someone within a non-compliant van who genuinely will struggle to to pay to replace it, or people with an, who've just chosen to buy an old car who haven't who are going to struggle to again afford to replace it. Um, so I don't know whether that it's targeting the right people. I, I think those people will have already been sold. Anyone who's willing to swap their car for an electric bike or a Brompton, uh, I'm not sure this is the thing that's going to make them be like, yes, actually. You know. um, what do you think, Simon? Yeah, I think there's kind of two things going on here. Um, one is that, you know, London is a world city. It's almost, and it's different to the rest of the UK, mm. you know, not least because of its size, its economy, uh, there's nine million people live here. Um, it's and the way it's run, it's almost like a state within a state. Yeah, um, you've seen that in the wake of that by-election, Labour started backtracking on some of its environmental uh, credentials that might be seen as a vote loser. But Sadiq Khan has actually he's had the political bravery to actually stand up to his party and say, no, we're going through with this. And it's happened today. It hasn't been watered down at all, despite pressure that we, we've we heard that he might have been under from Labour HQ. So he's gone through with it. Now, that's all part of making London a greener, cleaner city, I think, uh, which we see in terms of the site and infrastructure that's been built in recent years. It's very noticeable how many more people there are cycling around London. Um, there was a statistic out recently about, um, for the first time, there'd been a downturn in the number of people riding the Santander cycle hire bikes. Mm -hmm. But what you have to balance that against is there's been massive uptake of things like the line bikes. So, you know, you go out in the streets and you do see people riding those public hire bikes. Um you go into London, even on a weekday, never mind a weekend, go into London on a weekend, on a weekday afternoon, and there are loads of people cycling around on the, on the safe cycle routes. Now, those people who own vehicles that are not compliant with ULES, are you going to get them to switch to, to cycling? Maybe some of them, but, you know, I, certainly not all of them. And I don't think that's the main point. If people do want to take up some of the offers that that are on the TFL website, which besides the Brompton one, we've also got um, there's offers for for hiring the e-bikes. There's even cargo bikes on there aimed at small businesses. Um, I think people will take up those offers. Obviously, just a limited number of those offers, offers because they are funded by a finite amount of money. But I think there will be uptake of those. But you know, it's not like you're going to get everyone with a non-ULAS compliant car switching overnight. One example I did give, though, was um, say you have someone who lives, um, I don't know, in Hertfordshire, close to the edge of London, and they drive to the nearest tube station, park the car there, and then get the tube to work. Now, that person, on top of the car parking charge, might not want to pay the £12.50 on top every day just to come into Greater London across the border. But if that person lives three, four miles away from the tube station, you could easily see them switching to a bike to do that. 
I mean, it would make sense and it would save money. I, th- I think maybe I'm being a bit, uh, maybe maybe I spend too much time on social media and I'm thinking, well, that, per- that, that you know, there's people who will almost as a political statement not do that. But then I, I am, uh, as part of our jobs, we look at the very angriest corners of social <laughs> media to gauge reaction. Maybe those people are like an ultra minority, you know, when they they have very loud voices. But, but it's not like this isn't, that's what I mean. The, the actual Conservative Party are saying that this is just a cash grab. Uh, the, the people who are supposed to be in charge of the country. It's not just fringe uh, political candidates for the for the mayor <laughs> for uh, to be mayor and like angry people ripping down Ulez cameras. As we we've seen that's happened. Um, I've I've spent a bit of time digging in into that, and it's it's not it's not a few people. It's possibly thousands who are not participating but egging egging Mm. on that kind of behavior um so i don't know like to to actually get you know everybody on side and to make those people not not to have not have like thousands of people egging basically vandalism on and and that mentality of like you know we're not going to switch to a bike as like an actual because (laughs) we did because it's like morally wrong because khan's just trying to take all our money um how do you convince those people? Were like, could have, could Ulez have been done better? Because it's not, it's not perfect. Like, I mean, there is going to be, there is going to be people financially impacted by this. And also, I think that there is that argument that you'll have multi-millionaires who will be paying the same as somebody who may really struggle to pay that, or like won't be able to pay that money. So they're being forced onto the tube or a bike. Um, what what's what's the argument against that? Just that it's just too complicated to implement. If it would be like if it was like a, a means tested thing. I mean, how many realistically? How many multimillionaires are going to be taking a non ULES compliant well, car? It's, it's it's the into yeah London anyway. It's the image of it. You know, but that's that's what I'm saying. Even though it's a drop in the ocean, but like, I I think back to footage of a, a famous footballer that we might have published a bit ago who was and it was just the just the it just makes you angry just this person in an basically an armored tank in central london and if you're if you're on a bike or you know you have to share the road with this person with a mobile phone in one hand and a coffee in the other um and it, it's just should that person be not be penalized more um than every, even though, like I said, it's a drop in the ocean. But um, I mean, how how much more effort would it have been to charge? You know, like do the, so. The charge is based on how expensive your vehicle is, rather than a flat fee. Yeah, no, I, think, I think part of the problem is, but you know, the the charge is against harmful pollutions. It's not against the cost of the vehicle, is it? Um, and I think one of the problems is that people have they found it difficult to understand, in many cases, whether the vehicle complies or not. And they, they just go by what they've been told, even though you can just go and check your license plate and, and find out very quickly whether it's compliant or not. But, um, you know, one of the problems is that it's a difficult concept to to get across clearly in communications to the mass market that, you know, most vehicles are compliant, but please go and check yours just in case. At a time when on social media, you have people, whether 
acting in misguided good faith or acting in bad faith mm. are actually saying that it applies to everyone, which it certainly doesn't. But that seems to be the widespread understanding among a lot of people and amongst a lot of people who are cheerleading on these people cutting down the cameras. And um, going back to the point about, about how it's entered the political mainstream, um, let's not forget that originally this was devised by Boris Johnson when he was mayor of London. Okay, it wasn't implemented until Sadiq Khan came in. And also, uh, Expand New Les Zone was made a precondition of the emergency funding that TfL was given by central government during the coronavirus pandemic uh, because the, the finances collapsed because no one was on public transport. Mm. And prior to that, Sadiq Khan had actually turned around TfL's finances, which is something that's often forgotten. Um, so like I said, it comes back to, you know, it's now being made a political issue. You know, why someone, you know, in you know, northwest of England is so bothered about a charge that's going on that applies to a minority of motorists in around London um, is a bit mystifying. But um, yeah, it's... But isn't that it's, why it's, it's definitely an issue that's now in the mainstream. I think it's very misunderstood. I think it's an. I think it's an interesting, a really interesting point about the conflation of ULES with politics. Because October, you know, October twenty one, no one cared about this expansion, even though it suddenly put millions more people within that zone. People didn't care then, and it is. I. I mean, I'm under. No illusions that essentially what is happening is that it's a it's just a vote winning scheme by a desperate party who aren't particularly do, doing particularly well in the polls, and I think that it's worrying for us as as cyclists, not necessarily because of you know ULES itself, but because when you put this in with ULES LTNs, and then you kind of think that the next thing that you know. Those are all part of clean air initiatives. Cycling infrastructure is an absolutely massive part of that as well. So are we going to start seeing this for cycling infrastructure too? People saying that it's a way of controlling us and that it's a way of forcing people to do certain things. I mean, is that something that we should be worried about? I think we've already seen, haven't we, earlier this year that, um, you know, obviously after that disastrous um fiscal statement, whatever you want to call it, last last autumn, it was clear that cuts were going to have to be made somewhere. And I suspected at the time that the active travel budget was going to be one of them. And yes, I think these are overlapping issues um, in terms of, you know, any initiative to get more people using public transport, walking rather than driving a short distance, using bicycles for daily trips. It does get seen as an attack on the right, in inverted commas, to drive your car wherever you like. And at the same time, that ties in with the opposition, again, many of the same people, to low traffic neighbourhoods, um, to, you know, the, the kind of 15 minute city, which is another thing we've talked about in the past, and which is very, very widely misunderstood. And ULES, again, just forms part of that. It's it's seen as a policy that some would like to portray as an attack on the motorist, on the hardworking, normal person, like people who don't drive cars aren't normal people. 
You know what I mean? Um, and it goes back to that default thing that, again, we've talked about in the past, where car ownership seems the norm, whereas in parts of London, Islington, Hackney, for instance, it's very much, you know, the minority, and even the minority who own cars certainly aren't driving them the whole time, yeah? Um, so within London terms, yeah, it's, it's definitely a bit of a, a misnomer, but you know, the, there are certain people out there who are using things like clean air zones, are using things like LTNs, are using things like building cycleways as a way of pushing their agenda. And often that will be as a way of, of winning votes um, and using it as a, an issue to drive a wedge between, you know, your hardworking motorist and, and everyone else. So do you argue with someone who... Set, like so, so I've another social media commentator who I don't particularly agree with on anything. But uh, as if Ulez isn't about raising money, uh, why doesn't he just ban the cars that you know the polluting cars? Why not just ban them? Um, <laughs> how how would um, how would you argue against somebody of that mindset, Simon? An outright ban, I suppose. An outright ban would give me more ammunition to to opponents, wouldn't it? Because if you've got, you know, a, a builder or something who for some reason has an old van that he hasn't upgraded and you just ban it, you're actually putting him out of work rather than giving him the chance to, every time he goes to visit a customer, you know, inside the, the ULES zone, he just adds £12.50 onto their bill. So he can actually carry on trading by paying the ULES Whereas, if you're just saying no, those cars are not coming in at all, um, that's actually politically that that's probably even more controversial and potentially more damaging for the Khan, and and gives his opponents much more leverage. I think. And I think that you know, a ban would still impact on what the narrative is about this. Because Simon, you'd be at the point of it's like, oh, it's uh, you know impacting normal hardworking people as if you know in cyclists or in, you know people who uh, ride their bikes or walk places are abnormal but i think one of the things is and you see it with a lot of like conservative party narrative right rightly or wrongly uh, depending on what it is but you talk about like differentiating people but how much of it as you being in london how much of this boils down to like a class thing that they almost say, like, oh, you less impacts, as you said, the builder, the tradesman who has to have a van for their tools, you know, all that kind of stuff that needs their vehicle that may not be compliant to work, to make a living, while there's a perception that those who can, you know, use cargo bikes, or, and we've seen this in other things, like with cargo bikes and, and, and the like, that those are people yeah. who can afford to not have a car who who have a kind of like a you know a privileged lifestyle a middle class lifestyle and that so i think that's where you know if there was a ban or ulas was implemented differently that same narrative would still apply that's in you know that, that uh, you know how much how much is that class element there you think uh i'm not sure i mean you know I'd like to see some actual figures on this, and I'm sure at some point they will come out. But about the number of tradesmen who, or, or tradespeople, who have upgraded their vans in, in you know in recent years, and 
you know, any, any vehicle manufactured in the past few years is already going to be compliant. Let's be clear about that. It's already going to be compliant. Um, and, you know, many tradespeople, they, they do upgrade, the, you know, if, especially if they're on a lease purchase or whatever, they will be upgrading the vehicle regularly. So, you know, again, I'd be interested to hear what actual percentage we're talking about who are impacted by ULES. And um, I, I did a blog about this the other day, and one point I made there, and it's going back to the the point about, you know, the, the, this builder. So, you know, let's say you're, you're having some work done in your house and it's going to last a few weeks. Um, you're not going to get one quote. You're going to get several quotes, yeah, from different different firms, and you're going to have a look at that within your budget. Now, the builder who has a US compliant van, he doesn't have to factor in that £12.50 per day charge, yeah? The one who has a non-compliant van, let's say we're talking about a three-week project, 15 days, he's going to have bung on another couple of hundred quid to cover his costs for, for paying the ULES charge coming into town, yeah? Um, which makes his quote probably slightly less competitive unless he brings down other elements of it, but that's a business decision for him to make. And if his, if his competitors have been ahead enough of the game that they've insured they have a ULES compliant vehicle and he doesn't, well, that would just be like him not having the most up-to-date power tools or whatever and, you know, relying on an old hand drill or, you know, manual screwdriver. It's just another kind of business overhead. Yeah, it will get passed on to the customer ultimately, but in the context of, you know, you have an extension built or a kitchen redone and that's taken three weeks' worth of work, that's a project that's going to cost tens of thousands of pounds. So that additional £12.50 a day that you're passing on is almost almost insignificant, really. But you've had people, again, um, there was uh, Richard Littlejohn in Mail, Mail, I think it was, last week, who was up in arms about that and saying, well, yeah, it's going to disadvantage them. But it's, it's just part of the trading general. It's a trading decision, isn't it? Yeah, but yeah. I think that, yeah, the thing is, regardless of the actual the numbers of it and this is the thing when it comes to ULEDs and LTNs and all the numbers don't really matter when it comes to the rhetoric of what's being said and that's where to bring it back to like the cycling deals and the, and the bike hire deals and Brompton deals uh, how much how helpful is that in you know in, in saying right now ULEDs is coming in get a bike how helpful is that narrative in in you know and actually like in quelling that kind of rhetoric and kind of saying no it's not about pushing you out of your cars or whatever you know that's what we're kind of you know saying is is those kind of uh not kind of like messaging uh you know is that is that actually harmful to getting people on side when it comes to actually looking at oh the figures and the numbers and what you yeah, actually that means the point. yeah that was the point i was making about how could this have been done better really because like i said the, the fact that um, I know it's a drop in the ocean, but there, there's people who are very, very rich who will still, they won't be impacted because they're very rich by ULES. But um, there, there is some people genuinely impacted, but maybe not as much as they let on. And maybe there isn't as many of them, as they say. So, so like I said, um, yeah, what could this have been done any better or was it inevitable? And how do you stop that rhetoric of it's just a cash, cash grab Um you know what 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 could have been what what can be done to to convince those people who might be 
who might be swayed towards literal conspiracy theorists over um, over policymakers who are actually trying to do the right thing, clean up the air. Well, you're going you're going right to the heart of, aren't you? And it, it's it's it really is a difficult one because we've seen here in recent years, and I'm I'm not going to mention the obvious thing, but we've seen here in recent years that when it comes to an emotive issue and car ownership is very emotive. Okay, for many people, a car is almost like an extension of their home. Yeah, it's their little cocoon in the outside world. They can have their music on, they can dump their stuff on the back seat. You know, they're there, they're insulated from the rest of the world outside. Um, so it's a very territorial thing for them. And, you know, as we saw with that other thing I'm not going to mention, you can put the facts out in front of people as much as you like, yeah, and hope that they will actually go away and do their own research and come to an informed decision. But at the end of the day, many people are more likely to be swayed by just a little soundbite and, you know, just someone saying on the news or on social media or whatever, something that is factually incorrect or misleading, but they'll believe it because it's what they want to believe and they will make their decision accordingly. And, you know, another thing is, I am convinced that over the next few weeks, there are going to be a lot of people in outer London and in the county surrounding London who will suddenly have a little light bulb come on to their, on, in their head when they realise that actually their vehicle is compliant with ULEZ and they don't have to pay that £12.50. But right now, as of this morning, they probably do worry about having to pay that. So as you guys are aware, the Road TC podcast is currently in association with Hammerhead. So we've looked at their Caro 2 on the site, and it is the most advanced cycling computer available today, with industry-leading mapping, navigation, and routing capabilities that set it apart from other GPS options. Hammerhead's exclusive climber with predictive path technology feature lets you visualise and prepare for upcoming gradient changes in real time with or without a route loaded. Seamlessly and wirelessly import routes from Strava, Komoot and more. You can route, reroute or create pin drop routing on the fly, all with turn by turn directions and upcoming elevation changes. The Caritou's new e-bike integration brings detailed battery usage data right into your display so you can fuel your most epic adventures and explore your range with confidence, something that I'm sure Dave will be particularly excited about. Uh, tens of thousands of cyclists have chosen the Caritou as their trusted riding companions, including women's world tour team Canyon SRAM and team Israel Premier Tech. Hammerhead athletes keep on course and stay aware of upcoming elevation changes with their Caro 2 devices. Hammerhead's Caro 2 has been named top GPS cycling computer across the industry for the last three years and continues to be a top choice for serious cyclists around the world. Right now, our listeners can get a free heart rate monitor with the purchase of a Hammerhead Caro 2. Visit hammerhead.io right now and use promo code ROADCC, all in capital letters, at checkout to get yours today. So remember, use the promo code ROADCC, that's R-O-A-D-C-C, all in capitals, at checkout to get yours today. I am joined by Brian McCullough, who is from The Bike, The Body, which is a specialist 
cycling physio rehabilitation uh well brian why don't you why don't you explain exactly <laughs> what you do and then uh, i will get into why i need your help and why others um should seek help for their various ailments if they have them to yeah thanks jack for having me on yeah i suppose it is a bit niche uh, i mean i've been i've been a physio for uh, nearly 20 years and been working in bike fitting for about 10 actually more than 10 years uh, so I, I set up the bike the body as a sort of specialist clinic offering physiotherapy very cycling focused and bike fitting to try to get beyond just a, a very basic overview of people in terms of just bike fit or just physio but combine the two together to get a better overall um, outcome and obviously that's taken me on a journey of working with a variety of different athletes you know anything from just someone who's riding their bike day to day to someone who wants performance and people who've unfortunately encountered serious injuries or uh, injuries that have led them to developing surgery as you have so um yeah perfectly happy to chat you through some of your experiences and kind of maybe helping guide your rehab as well cool so i, I mean for, for those who are listening i mean my my, my um my problem and, and the thing i'm recovering from is quite specific but i guess later on we will get into you know all, all this is applicable to basically anyone who are, well should be applicable to people who have hip and knee problems which is like probably the most common complaint with it is that fair that like one of the most common complaints um with like cycling injuries and and issues people face when they're cycling is like that yeah, area absolutely um, yeah. yeah, knee, 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 back, uh, neck, and hip issues tend to top the bill. Uh, knee is generally uh, top of the list for most people. Cool. So, like, yeah, a bit of background on me. When I was like, well, literally like 30, 31, I got a bit of a shock um, when I found out I had end-stage osteoarthritis in my right hip. Um, the orthopedic specialist described this as fascinating, uh, which I didn't know whether to be flattered or not really but like they have a way with words don't they <laughs> well yeah i mean it was like that and then also you know i was like so what what hope do i have is like very little <laughs> you know um yeah they're kind of very to the point these people aren't they um but since then i've been extremely lucky to be put in touch with you know one of the best surgeons in the country when it comes to these problems so like because of my you know fairly young age for uh, someone with this kind of problem, um, I got recommended to have a hip resurfacing, which is um, not quite the same as a replacement, but they they put a metal cap over the top of your existing hip joint instead of replacing the whole thing. Um, file it down and then make it look right again, rather than just the bone on bone that I've been dealing with for the last couple of years. Um, and the hope there is that, you know, well, from what the surgeon told me, I should be able to get pretty similar range of motion and and with that hopefully what i'm hoping is like cycling fitness and and fitness that i had before before it happened i mean it, it might not always be it might not be exactly the same as it was when i was in my mid-20s but this is what i can hope and and cycling being you know less high impact than something like running or well andy murray had the same operation as me and he's got back okay. to um you know he's got back to playing professional tennis to like well almost the level he was he was at before so i have hopes um yeah, it, it is it is as you said it's an excellent option for a young athletic hip 
And the, the key thing that differentiates the hip resurfacing from a total hip replacement is, is indeed the prosthetic and the way it's uh, formed. The key advantage of a resurfacing is that we get a much bigger um, ball, so the actual femoral head is bigger, and therefore we get much better hip joint stability than we would do in the way they do a total hip replacement, which is a smaller ball into socket uh, interaction. So they can be, relatively speaking, less stable. And therefore, someone who wants to get back to you know, moderate or higher level sport, um, cycling you know, quite different in the regard of we don't need dramatic range of motion and high impact resistance and change of direction. But you know, again, it's fantastically suitable for, for those candidates who want to get back to sport and activity. Uh, by comparison to a total hip replacement, so it's a really it's a great option for those unfortunate enough like yourself to to have had an injury like that or developed a problem like that. So, have, have you um, have you had people in your clinic before who have had hip resurfacing who've come to you for that, and and then what what kind of result if you have what kind of results have you have you seen? Yeah, so I've had a variety of hip procedures, total hip replacements and hip resurfacing cases that I've worked with in their rehab and return to cycling and you know across a variety of age groups as well. I mean my most recent case uh, I've had back to riding was someone in their mid-70s had a total hip replacement and you know he was amazing. He was back on Sofafest training and things like that within within weeks and you know he was very dedicated, very 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 focused on getting back and building back up his training but that was a you know at, an, at the other end of the spectrum you know he was in his mid 70s had a total hip replacement and back to excellent training took him many months longer than that to rebuild and regain that strength and that balance but in terms of what it was allowing him to do compared to the pain he was having beforehand incredible it can be an interesting one with a younger athlete or a younger rider uh, in that they're potentially coming from a higher level and the drop-off can be more severe and therefore the expectations of where they want to get back to you can be even greater and that can psychologically be quite challenging to feel that there's a, a bigger journey i mean you know andy murray is a great example of someone who came from the I mean, pinnacle of tennis documentary i mean he's like two weeks post-op and like crying because he can't get back on the training court isn't he you know yeah, like, uh, yeah exactly uh, yeah yeah and that, and that the, you know, the mentality um, is, is, is incredibly important to, to be able to get back because the rehab is not quick. You know, it's not a quick solution and I'll get that done and I'll be back on the bike next week. But luckily with cycling, it's actually one of the first recommended exercises um, that we would have people do once you've got sufficient range of motion. We actually want people on a bike, whether they're returning to tennis or football or whatever after hip resurfacing. So when I see patients who are looking to be, get back to their cycling, it's great because you think, Great. One of the first things we want you to do when we can is cycling. So uh, it almost is a, a match made in heaven uh, in terms of being able to get back to activity. Yeah, I mean, and the the, uh, the the sheets they you know when my operation was just under three weeks ago now. Um, so I am where I'm at. I'm sort of walking without crutches, fairly. Cool. There's a bit of a limp still when I'm walking around. Like they 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 give you some. They tell you to like do that thing where you walk with like one foot, you know, right in front of the other and try and get it balanced um, type thing. Um, but then one of the exercises they tell you to do is like spin biking almost, you know, within a couple of weeks of the operation. So I, I am, well, this is going to be one of my questions. Like where would you recommend me do that? But I'll be absolutely honest. I've given it a go already and it's not too bad, but um, I mean, the only thing, like I can't actually mount a, a normal bike yet. My, my, um, training bike indoor bike setup at home i i can't confidently get on it yet because the top tube is a bit high so 
I'm going exactly. to using the, the spin bikes, which is probably a bit more safe, you know. Yeah, so that's what I was going to say. So, so generally speaking, if you have got a setup, which is a bike on a turbo trainer, the, the mounting and dismounting is generally the bigger problem than the cycling itself. Um, <laughs> so having a, you know, a step or something like that nearby to help you get over the top of the bike is, is helpful in the first instance. Or if you've got a, um, a, a low sort of, uh, top tube or no top tube on a, on a, on a spin bike or something like that, then that obviously makes things much, much easier. But yeah, in the early stages, it's about your range of motion. You, you need to be able to, if you're going to sit on an upright bike, you need to be able to get at least 90 degrees. If you're sitting on a road bike, you need more than that. So generally speaking for my patients, I'll look to try to, if they are using a turbo trainer, they, they need to modify the front end a little bit. So whether that's putting a foam roller on top of the handlebars or, or even a Swiss ball so they can sit upright and just pedal and have their hip angle nice and open. So if they're sitting upright, the hip angle is open. Um, and you know, even things like running with a slightly higher saddle height at first is it, sometimes employed. But generally speaking, if you're having to raise the saddle height just to sit on the bike, it's too soon to be on the bike. Um, okay. So we want to make sure that, first of all, pain and swelling are under control, the scar is healing well, and that we have sufficient range of motion. Those are the kind of the key tenets that you need to make sure in your post-op recovery before you start thinking about the bike. Um, once you're working on all of that and your range of motion, again, with a hip resurfacing, generally speaking, all being well, it comes back really, really quite quickly. You know, in a couple of weeks, you know, you should be able to get up to sort of 110, even 120 degrees. It might be a bit stiff and uncomfortable, but sitting upright on a bike and the more you pedal at that sort of naught to 90 sort of range of motion, the more comfortable things become in that range. But that's still taking things nice and easy keeping the resistance low on the turbo trainer because you're using it rather than cycling, you're using it as a range of motion exercise and a bit of fluidity and a bit of activation. That's, that's what I was going to ask. Like I shouldn't really be thinking about, you know, building a sweat up where I'm, cause I, I mean, you, you said about the rec, like I do feel I'm at a point now where I'm comfortable spinning the bike. So as like making this applicable to others, if you've had a resurfacing or a replacement, then, you know, you're at a point where you can sit on the bike where the saddle is, the angle where you you know the height and angle where you'd usually have it uh, and you can pedal without too much pain um so then the, my next question would be yeah i mean when we're talking about resistance um is is, is some resistance okay what what kind of um uh, I, I don't know and what, how long what kind of duration like 10 minutes and then stop for a bit and then another 10 minutes or just be very you know go off my own intuition so generally speaking, yeah, what, what you want to do, think about it like this. You, you don't want to do any harm. You're, you're doing it. If you think of it as a range of motion exercise rather than cycling, suddenly you start to change the, the focus. And you think, well, I wouldn't do range of motion exercises for 40 minutes nonstop. That would be a bit odd. So if you think about it like that, you're unlikely. If you think about it, go hopping on the turbo, you don't obviously think, yeah, I'll hop on the turbo for 40 minutes or an hour. That's just a quick session. But range of motion exercises, if you're recovering from an injury, you think, yeah, I might do those for 10 to 15 minutes. So generally speaking, I'll say to someone, the first time you get on the bike, you're looking to just assess your range of motion and gauge. Once you've covered that, okay, great, manage that. That's really good. Once you're feeling comfortable that you have the range of motion, whether that's sitting upright or foam roller on handlebars to, to lift the front a little bit, then you're thinking, okay, let's see if I can just manage this nice and light resistance. So that's just easy spinning at a cadence of maybe 80 or 90 for five to 10 minutes. Once you're covering that for a couple of sessions and not feeling any increase in ache or symptoms afterwards, like, you know, walking, suddenly feeling more uncomfortable or more ache that evening or more ache the next morning. Those are sort of the three time points. If you're adding in an activity to say to yourself, do I need to back down on this a little bit? 
So if you can do that, then you might just add on, build it to 15, 15 to 20 minutes and, and work at it from there. Because then what you're doing is you're merging away from it being purely a range of motion exercise and you're actually getting back to just some simple cycling. Again, at this point, you're not trying to make it a cardiovascular exercise. So don't look to get a sweat on at first, just look to get comfortable. You're trying to help the hip settle down and re-familiarize. There's a new hip in there, you know? You're trying to actually get that, your body to accept this new hip and start to work and figure it out. Yeah. So, I mean, the other side of that is what what types of activity should I should I avoid? I, I mean, and what about getting back outside on the bike as well? Because like, just something, I, I mean, I, I guess they, they would doctors and the hospital would wouldn't recommend you know they they give i mean the advice is to take you know a whole month off work don't drive for two months don't do this don't do that like um i mean i get i don't know how much of that is because of the risk so you know if i was to cycle to the shops which i should feel i shouldn't feel any pain but i guess it's just <laughs> the risk of if i get knocked off then all the good work's been undone so um, are there any reasons other than risk for me to not ride outside again for, you know, a certain period of time? It, it is predominantly that. In the early phase, you need to focus on making sure that you're recovering well and not putting the operation you've had at, at risk. And, you know, the reality of riding outdoors is sometimes we do fall off uh, or have a crash or have an accident, or have an incident or something unexpected. And it might just even be having to stop all of a sudden at some traffic light and to put your leg down. And if it's your pre predominant leg or your preferred leg that you stop, put down you know that might be enough of a jarring force that you didn't expect so let's just avoid those obvious things that might be a problem and and if you are going outside one thing i didn't mention is when you're first getting on the bike is avoid your clipless pedals so if you do use a, a pedal system that clips in just start with flat pedals or if you don't have flat pedals just use your trainers on top of the pedals that you've got for the time being you don't need the additional difficulty of twisting to click your leg in and out of your cleat and being restricted into the pedal, that can feel quite claustrophobic when you're not confident of the hip. So start with flat pedals. And absolutely, when you are looking to go and ride outside, and I would generally say to someone, look, wait at least six weeks before you're going to think about going outside. Um, but you, you can look into the pros. I mean, there's a good case, um, Bart Clerk, who's now, I think he has now retired, but he was riding with uh, Inter Marseille or Wanty, Wanty Group, whatever their name was at that point. He had a total hip replacement, so not a resurfacing um, in 2018. Um, he was back racing, I think, in about six weeks. Wow. Uh, that's extreme. He, so that means he was back on his turbo, back building up fitness, and back outside, and back riding and racing. So that is extremely quick, and we shouldn't use that as a guide to, that's what I should do. But it's also useful to know just what the body is capable of. Right. Um, remember, our, for the most, for the majority uh, of people listening, our livelihood isn't riding our bike, as in what we're going to earn money from. You know, we need to get back to work. We don't need to put ourselves at additional risk and more time off work. Like you said, you're off work already. Yeah, I mean, I guess this kind guy, of, his whole body is, you know, his whole life is all of his bones and structure is built around pedaling a bike so that would allow um him to get because I, I mean i was looking at the recovery times and like you know um i can't be competitive with sport at the moment so i've taken to try and uh trying to beat the expected recovery times on google for this hip, uh resurfacing and um you know i was seeing things that were saying you know there's some people who don't get off crutches for like eight weeks and I was like, oh, well, I'm doing all right. It's been two weeks and I'm off crutches, you know. But um, I get, it can be quite tempting to compare yourself to others. Um, 
but I guess it's just taking it literally a step at a time and knowing it, knowing your body and not pushing past that that threat, uh, pain threshold. Yeah, exactly. So you you need to be aware that it's it's it would be unexpected to have no pain at all. You've just had major surgery, um, so there is going to be some discomfort. But it's differentiating between discomfort increases and decreases in discomfort from activity and doing your rehab exercises versus actually having taken almost a step back, caused some inflammation or, you know, caused some pain that's actually going to cause a slowdown in your recovery. Like you said, all of those other factors are individual beyond that. But the things that are fairly consistent are wound healing in terms of the scar itself. You know, that, that's going to happen over that first sort of two to four weeks that your wound's going to close off. Hopefully at, at two weeks, you'd have had your clips out, you know, the extra um, sort of staples that were holding the wound shut. They should be all out. All the dressing should be down. And then over the kind of two to six weeks bit, we're waiting for the skin to fully close up. Normally at that point, then swimming becomes an option as well because we're not at risk of developing an infection. You always need to keep an eye out if you've had surgery for signs of infection. So things becoming suddenly more stiff, more painful, red, shiny skin, swollen, things like that. You just need to look out for at any point. Yeah. So, I mean, again, this is like a bit of a general question but in, in your like yeah i mean i don't know if there's an actual answer for this but like generally how long before your clients are back to full activity level levels after replacements or resurfacing can, can you give me you know like an example of a 35 year old 45 year old you set your 70 year old you know like and, until they are like you know oh i feel as good or better than i did before yeah um so Again, it is very specific. So, for example, um, if you've had a period, if you've, if you've, in your situation where you go go ahead and develop this early onset arthritis, there's generally been some degree of decline, um, and with that decline becomes uh, reduced fitness, um, muscle atrophy, muscle weakness, muscle pattern changes, movement pattern changes, in that lead up to then ultimately having had surgery. Now, depending on the degree of decline and the duration of that decline will dictate how much fitness and strength reserves are there when you start post-op. It may be that you've had a couple of months of it going downhill steadily, which means you've got weaker and weaker and weaker relatively around that hip. You've lost muscle mass, you've lost muscle strength and, and mobility, which means all of those other tissues around have changed. Those are going to dramatically impact how quickly you'll be able to build back up afterwards. Whether it's, if it's been a quicker um, drop off and a decision to have surgery early, you'll find that actually you've got pretty good hip strength and muscle bulk maintained and the recovery can be quicker. But in terms of getting back on a bike and just to, like I said, I, I try not to give specifics because it's very individual, but really what you want to think about is those first three months is you should be getting back to a good base of cycling, right? So at, at three months, I would expect someone to be back riding, base miles, comfortable, able to ride for sort of, you know, one to two hours at a sort of maximum length. And in the four to six month window, I'm then thinking about someone working on higher level conditioning and potentially racing if that's their trajectory. And again, looking at the lead off time and then between six to nine months from a cycling point of view, I'm thinking all things being well, we should be getting back towards previous levels if, if there's been no other barriers or problems encountered. That's probably about what I was expecting. Yeah, I mean, going back to what you were saying about the drop off. Um, I mean, and and choosing when to have surgery. I mean, with me, 
it took me a long time to get diagnosed because I, you know with the pandemic and everything and i, I did look was very lucky to have the operation on the nhs but when you go and see a gp um and you're 30 the they're probably not expecting that you've you're, you've got severe arthritis but um no, exactly eventually it was it was actually through a physio who was like there's nothing i can do with you there's something uh, more at play here um managed to get you know got another mri scan and then finally got sent to an orthopedic specialist who was then yes you've got severe arthritis and that led to the me being able to get this operation which probably was like a couple of years you know so i think for me there has been uh, you know it's been a long drop off and it's been going on for a long time um i have noticed that my right it's my right leg that's the, the problem um it is sm like i've noticed that it is smaller than my left leg now and then when um i use a power meter on my turbo trainer and outside and like so for example you know i could be over like a, a 30 minute or an hour long turbo session when I don't consciously try and do anything about it, I could have um, my left leg could be 60%, you know, like the left, right pedal balance. I could, Power balance, yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, when I was at my fittest, it would be, I'm actually right footed. So it would usually be about 50.5% on the right to 495 left or even dead even sometimes if I tried to get it even. Whereas the last year or two, I've been seeing 60% on my left. And if I don't think about it at all, if I, when I first start pedaling, it can be like 70% on the left leg, you know. Um, yeah, so exactly. And that's a lot of that, like we talked about that lead in. So you've had maybe a year to 18 months of, of altered conditioning, altered balance, altered mental cognitive sort of control over the bike and things like yeah, that as well. Yeah with my left leg i guess so so what um should i consciously try and do anything to balance that out or will my body do that etc should, should i be you know at the start and end of every session doing 15 minutes um just single side on my right to try and get it as strong or will it just uh will it naturally balance out um yeah good good, good question I'll, I'll come at that in a couple of angles um i'm not a big fan of single-sided pedaling drills in a post-op hip the main reason for that is first of all to do a single-sided pedaling drill you need to be clipped in and to do single-sided pedaling you therefore need to pull up and if you pull up you'll tend to just aggravate the front of the hip uh, and develop hip flexor tendon problems and hip flexor um, tendinopathy and inflammation so in short i'm not a big fan of that for the post-op hip there's lots of other reasons why single leg pedaling drills are great so let's not we won't take that as a separate soundbite as in there's no use to them but in a post-op hip not a big fan of that um what should you do what's the best way to get back to that balance well there's two sides one is certainly working on trying to make a conscious effort to get that right leg back to pushing because your brain has learned to slightly reduce effort level into that right side over the last year and a half and so you need to now tell your brain this hip is good now we need to put it on a building trajectory we can push it harder and harder whether it's the, the body and the brain would progressively thinking we need to push less on this hip it's not tolerating it we now need to sort of reinforce the message that we now have a healing and recovering hip rather than a degenerative hip does that make sense yeah mm -hmm. so you do want to try to push back towards making a conscious effort to engage that right side pedaling balance though is a really interesting one I, i've worked on cases where i've seen a rider be able to get back to 50 50 left and right and still have a quadriceps deficit of you know 25 percent compared to the opposite side 
And that's where they were finding ways to compensate to get 50-50, but they were actually causing a new problem around their back because their quad actually hadn't re reached sufficient strength. So they were getting, they were working so hard on hitting 50-50 in four-hour rides that they were developing a back problem. So that brings me on to the next thing, which is strength. Strength is the key thing you need to get back. Strength will not be regained on the bike. Cycling is not a strength exercise by any way, shape, or form. Uh, it is a high rep activity, and that covers all cycling. doesn't matter if it's low-cadence stuff. It's all high rep, relatively speaking. So if you want to do strength work, you need to get off the bike. You need to do a mixture of compound movements, which are movements that involve multiple joints. Uh, you need to do a mixture of compound and isolation. So isolation is working one joint in one plane. So that might be hip lifting behind you. So hip extension or hip abduction, which is out to the side, or hip rotation and so forth. We want to do a combination of double leg, which would generally tend to be compound. So like say a squat and single leg exercises. So that might be a step up, a step down, a lunge and so forth. So we got to make sure that we have a good mix of, as I said, compound exercises isolation exercises, uh, weight bearing, non-weight bearing, and then different planes of movement. So forwards, side to side, rotational. We've got to get all those planes of movement into fully regained strength and not just around the hip, but the whole leg because you'll have lost quad strength, hamstring strength and calf strength from that right leg just not working as much. And I'm sure you're probably aware of that. Uh, yeah, I, I mean, like I said, it looks a bit yeah it, it, it you can definitely tell like visually the difference you know and like so when, when like you know when i would have be on the on the turbo and i would consciously try and get the pedal balance it would feel like i was having to jam my right leg you know what i mean I, you just can't believe how much weaker it's got really you know um but yeah yeah i, th I think i understand what you're saying about trying to get it so so not not just absolutely over a four-hour ride it's not it's not a good idea to just focus entirely on getting that because that will lead to other other problems so yeah i mean i think look ultimately we're not talking about you doing four hour rides right now anyway <laughs> no, 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 when i'm ready to yeah. exactly and if, if you're rehabbing correctly and having good guidance with that by the time you get to riding four hours you should have recovered a good balance of strength such that that's easier to do that so as i said the strength training off the bike will facilitate your ability to get that 50 50 better so in the early stages, you're making a conscious effort to try not to avoid using that right leg and increase the, the mental drive to that right leg being a recovering leg without forcing it. And then knowing that off bike, you're going to keep building that strength. And then on bike, you're going to try and reproduce that. Yeah, let's get those muscles to work that we can feel. Okay, let's get those glutes and hammies and quads to really push down through the pedal. Um, and like I said, it's, it's both of those things that work together to then get you back to feeling like hopefully a little bit more balanced and more normal pedaling. Yeah. Cool. Um, so, I mean, uh, putting this out wider, there might be people listening who've got, you know, uh, who have osteoarthritis. Maybe maybe they haven't had a replacement, but dealing with a mild case of it or, or you know, have had it for a while. So, so we, um, you're, you know, if how do you assess clients with osteoarthritis and how do their, how would their training plans differ to someone who, who hasn't got uh, this kind of problem? Um, yeah, that question, again, I, I look at it from two sides because osteoarthritis itself um, perhaps more directly refers to the imaging findings that we see in a hip. So an x-ray that demonstrates change in a joint. It's not 
equally painful for all people. So the imaging findings, an X-ray or an MRI, do not directly correlate with the pain that a person will experience. So, you know, you'll see these classic cases, someone who had no pain at all, they had an X-ray and it showed that their knee was actually quite arthritic. Vice versa, you can see someone who has very minor arthritis changes and has quite a lot of pain. So we need to assess both things, their pain levels, their function, and then perhaps also the imaging to get a full picture. Uh, the, the sort of things that I would say is that, you know, overall, the training doesn't need to be drastically different, but we might start to think a little bit about the frequency of training. So, you know, the time for recovery between sessions, uh, the intensity. So whether it's, you know, out of, out of, out of saddle work or low cadence work, I would generally err away from that with a, an arthritic knee or an arthritic hip. I would just try to say, you know, generally speaking, lower peak forces um, in terms of pedaling will, will work better. So again, if we can spin a little bit more, that helps. Um, and, and, and like I said, the, the, the training frequency, but then I would also start to introduce more off-bike work. So say, okay, well, can we address strength? Because we know as far as non-invasive interventions go, strength training is one of the best things that you can do to help to improve joint mechanics, joint function and reduce pain levels without get, like they're getting into anything invasive. Uh, then I would normally move on to bike fit. So we need to make sure we optimize someone's bike fit for the loading around the hip and knee. So if we want to think about the hip, we absolutely want to think about saddle height, saddle setback. So if your saddle is very far step back, it's going to close the hip out. If your crank length is on the longer end of the spectrum, you could consider having much shorter cranks. So instead of having a 175, you could have a 165 or even shorter down to a 150. Uh, and yeah. that will massively open out your hip over the top of the pedal stroke, which can suddenly take you from being really restricted, having to shift on the saddle to pedaling really smoothly and comfortably. And then your bar reach and drop will also dictate your upper body position. So again, the longer the reach and drop and the, and the lower the drop, the more you're going to close out your hip angle. So those factors make a big difference into whether you're going to be pedaling comfortably or not with a, a hip or knee problem. Okay. Um, so, I mean, we, you've said already, like cycling is, you know, naturally just a good thing. And, and again, with osteoarthritis, it's it's a very, the, the frustrating thing about it is when you ask the doctor, what can I do about it? Uh, well, nothing really. <laughs> so it's, um, but the, the, the advice is always to, it's better to use it than to not use it because it goes stiffer from what I understand, isn't it? Like, so, because I remember in the early parts of, you know, before I got diagnosed, I just assumed it was an injury. Like I'd had IT band issues in the past yeah. and because it's sort of the pain I was feeling was kind of similar to that, um, right. like a bit stingy. Because when, when I, I had IT band in my early 20s and yeah, it got to the point, like it got worse and worse and then it got to the point where, I couldn't walk down the road one day and I just had to like rest it for a month and then it was better magically. And I thought with this again, I was like, oh, well, I'll just rest it for a month. And then, but little did I know that was probably doing more harm than good, really. Um, from what Generally I understand. Generally speaking, yeah, you've got to, you've got to take an active approach. Uh, rest, rest will certainly not improve arthritis, but it is a balance. Okay. And like we said about training, um, certainly smashing it, Smashing consecutive days on the bike is generally unhelpful for a condition that has an associated inflammatory component to it, because you're going to increase the, that 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 the body's need for recovery will be increased, uh, and that stress will potentially increase inflammation, which will then get make the joint a little bit stiffer, a little bit more sore, a bit more restricted, and the more that happens, the more your body searches for compensations to work a different way, and then we're you're really starting to head off down that route. So, it's 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 very important to assess your training 
look at your strength balance between the left and the right side you know have a baseline where is it at currently but you've got to take an active approach because yeah you know arthritis with those problems will will certainly not go away and, and rest will generally just allow your muscles to decondition whether as we need our muscles to be conditioned yeah um finally so when it like you know we've we've talked arthritis we've talked hip replacements and things so when, when it comes to the big joints hips knees what what are the most is is that one of the most common things you see people come to you for what what's or is it mostly injuries that you yeah, deal with? It's a, it, yeah, it, it 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 depends. So with with the hip and knee, you've got to think of the age group of cyclists um, that I work with, and we're, we're obviously seeing increasing amounts of cyclists in their fifties and sixties and seventies. You know, more more now than I ever have in the past, seeing cyclists like, with incredible fitness levels into their fifties, sixties, and seventies, and even beyond that. Like generally, it, it, it's it's amazing. So we will see a different spectrum of injuries. So yeah, in an older hip or knee, we are more likely to see arthritis changes in the patellofemoral joint. So that's the kneecap joint and the main knee joint. But within cyclists, it's the kneecap joint if you're going to see arthritis in the knee that is most commonly uh, the problem. As we already mentioned, arthritis in the hip. But with a younger um, population, we might see what's called femoroacetabular impingement or FAI or problems with the labrum, which is the little cartilage rim around the edge of the hip joint. So we're more commonly see problems with FAI or labral issues, um, referred pain from the lower back or adductor related. So that's the kind of groin muscle, the adductor related groin pain um, within the younger cyclist. And when it comes to the knee, the fat pad, which is that little piece of tissue just below the kneecap on either side, patella tendon problems, ITB problems. Uh, um, and then, you know, beyond that, yes, sometimes we see meniscal problems, but it's really those front of knee issues that are people's major issues. Um, so, like I said, patella tendon, ITB, uh, and patella femoral joint pain, and and it's always just a, you know with with those kind of injuries, is it again a case of active recovery? There's never never many cases where, well, apart from if you break something, you know, where it's like complete rest. Yeah, if you if you if you've broken something and a, and a period of immobilization is required, then you know absolutely that that will be dictated upon based on the injury. So. Uh, what I see more commonly are what we term broadly as overuse injuries, i.e. something that has progressively developed as opposed to traumatic injuries. Because um, traumatic injuries will tend to be, you know, off the bike, it's an immediately identified problem and you will seek help, that broken collarbone, um, things like that. Whether is the other ones that develop is, is these overuse injuries. And the issue there is that people just put up with them for a long time. Whereas when you come off your bike and break your collarbone, you generally seek help because you need help immediately. Um, you can't carry on riding in most cases, but the overuse injuries often just get ignored until they get worse and worse and they snowball and more problems happen. So my advice there is get it assessed sooner, get it assessed earlier, because that will then hopefully be shorter and quicker to fix and get on top of and therefore reduce you, reduce the chance of you losing more time through the rest of the summer or the season or your racing or whatever you've got kind of planned or lined up. But get it assessed sooner so that you can actually put a plan together to modify your training get some rehab if it's needed off the bike, modify your bike fit if that's needed. But if you see a suitably qualified professional to be able to give you the right advice sooner, you're less likely to be off the bike for as long. Okay. Well, Brian, thank you very, very much for talking to me. And hopefully the next time I check in with you, I will be, you know, maybe maybe even you know flying up 14 percent inclines with half of my shoe missing like a certain dutchman did uh at the weekend to win the world yeah 
Yeah, it'd be great to uh, it'd be great to have a, a review check in with you, and we can we can do an update on your progress and assess uh, where you're at with your with your goals and expectations. I think that'd be uh, good to yeah. catch up on. Maybe I won't go that health level though in my recovery. To in, in you know, so that I can get to that level. You know, a level even half of that. You know, uh, <laughs> with my if any with my, of us mere mortals, we would love to just get up a climb uh, on an e-bike and keep up with them. That would be doing well. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Right, Brian, thank you very much. Thanks. So that was episode 59 of the Road CC podcast in association with Hammerhead. So normally I would put in something that somebody on the podcast has said, you know, that might be a bit silly or who knows, sometimes even taking it out of context slightly. But this time I decided to put in some of me kind of literally screwing up this exact outro. Hi guys, and welcome to episode 59 of the road... Jesus Christ, it's the outro. And there we have it. Episode 59 of the Road CC podcast in association with Hammerhead. So... Now I know that I can often come across as perfect and eloquent in every way, but hopefully that shows that even I can mess up probably 10 times more than what I put in there in every episode so as i said before i hope you guys enjoyed the episode um we'll be back next time and i think we are planning on being even nerdier than we have been before so for everyone who is particularly interested in nerdiness watch out we'll be back again in a couple of weeks until then cycle safe bye